11FS, I'm Megan Johnson, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, David Cameron takes a job in a payments firm as Putin cracks down on cryptocurrencies, and Venezuela doesn't have enough cash in a country where cash is king. And we hear from Adam Dodd, CEO of Free Trade, about their latest announcement. All this and more on today's news show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, London, Allgate. My name is Megan Johnson, or MJ, from 11FS, and I'm joined by literally none of my regular co-hosts this week. Simon is ill, David and Jason are in Australia, so we've got a guest takeover today. So let's hear from our guests. Joining us this week, we have a friend of the show and Capco principal consultant, Charlie Wood. Great to have you back on the show. Nice to see you again. Alongside him, we also have our favorite Business Insider reporter, star FinTech Insider After Dark. It's Sarah Kachansky. Hello. Hello. And another star of After Dark, it's Girl Disrupted. It's Liz Lumley. Hello, everyone. The girls outnumber the boys today. Yeah. Yeah, we've really split the table as well, right? I feel like we're going to have a ping pong tournament. Yeah, we look like a like a junior high dance or something. All the girls on the side of the room and all the guys on that side of the room. Oh, don't give me flashbacks. I'm just thinking Prince and Purple Rain. That's how old I am. (laughs) And finally, making his FinTech Insider debut is my colleague, Benedict Chagog from 11FS Pulse and Research Team. Thanks for joining us today, Benedict. Hey. Right, so let's get into this week's news. So the first story we're going to look at is from The Guardian, and it was submitted to Fintech Insider News by new community manager Alex S. And this essentially talks about how David Cameron has taken a job with a U.S. (laughs) electronic payments firm, and everyone's laughing. So David Cameron has taken a job um, with First Data Corporation. It's his first major private sector job since leaving the office. Um, He'll work two to three days a month for the Mm. U.S. company. Has he really got a job? Is that Mm -hmm. a job? (laughs) Um, Are there any salary details in there? He's, he's like a Kardashian. He's just showing up to their parties. Yeah. To first data, though. I mean, there's... <laughs> yeah, but he's probably getting paid like a few hundred thousand. Does, does he have any any payments background? Any kind of merchant banking background? Anything? No, 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 no. He's public. He's Eaton, Oxbridge, uh, clerking at a Tory office, safe Tory seat, prime minister. That's his career path. Wasn't there a PR post somewhere oh, in there? Oh, God. So. <laughs> Is that, is that the qualification? His wife has more famous experience than he does. I think they they positioned it as, like, he was kind of, you know, like the spearhead behind London becoming the fintech scene. So it was, you know, all his doing. And Wasn't that George Osborne? Yeah. I, okay. I mean, yeah. I think Simon's response to this was, what the funk? So um, he was the one who picked this up originally. He was very surprised. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we've talked to quite a few times about Will I am and Adam Banks. So we kind of we've seen the celebrity waves of um, you know getting involved in fintech and now we're seeing the Ugh, what a range though. <laughs> Cameron to yeah. Will I am. How far down is that list does he come? <laughs> we couldn't get George Osborne, damn it. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like his agent got him this nice cushy job. He has to appear at a few events. Bank building network right, I'm assuming is what he's there for but he's not allowed to talk to governments right that's what they he said can't lobby. he can't lobby, lobby for right. like yeah. certain number of months mm. um, which presumably is an ex-prime minister thing rather than a David Cameron thing yeah yeah yeah. yeah. I mean I don't know if he can lobby anyway even if he wasn't <laughs> a prime minister but yeah I mean it's two years after he left office I believe they said something like that 
But yeah. he very conveniently got the job just enough time after he left office that we don't get to see his previous salaries. Oh, I was yeah, I was intrigued. Not that one would like to pry, but you know, being guy. One would like to pry. I saw. <laughs> a num- I don't know if it's in the Guardian article, but I saw a number that said eight hundred thousand for something. I think George Osborne was 650k for two days a month. The 800,000 was for his memoirs. No, uh, his memoirs before he left office. Which hilariously, compared to the 4.6 million that Tony Blair got, was like, oh, nobody cares. (laughs) Hey, I'll take 800,000 for my memoirs. (laughs) Clearly got the bum deal compared to. um, (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, Tony Blair, you know, got us into war and he just, like, got us into Brexit. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This was scales of magnitude. Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> the second story comes from The Telegraph, um, and it's ex-Barclays boss Anthony Jenkins, um, the heyday of banking will never return. And he cites this um, to the rise in artificial intelligence um, threatening some of the services. What do we think about this? Does, does anybody actually understand it? Because he says that he bigs up AI and he says it's going to make things more efficient. And then he says that threatens profitability. I'm like, there's a logic gap there somewhere. Maybe it's just well, the analyst said, but, like, in ba- me. Banks make money off of friction and off of the margins. Right. So you close those margins. Foolish of me to friction. think yeah. that uh, increasing efficiency <laughs> would make your business run more smoothly and uh, lower your outgoings. Okay. Exactly. But Fine. I don't understand what he means by the heyday. What? Profits. Oh, Bigger okay. profits. Okay. Yeah, I remember the 90s. That's right. <laughs> we were talking about it. It was, actually. It was. The 90s were, for all you youngsters here at the table, um, it was, there was so much money around. I, it was a, I used to write about derivatives trading, and it was just a small thing, being a journalist. Um, and I'm not saying you should go back to that world because they made a lot of fuck-ups. Um, but I used to get, like, you know, campers from Fortnum and Mason and, and wine, and you'd be invited to parties, and that's all gone. Um, for a lot of reasons. Um, so yeah, okay. So the the heyday of the Fortnum Mason hampers and the champagne is obviously over. But but I mean, is <laughs> it actually, is that actually? I mean, what the struggle here is like he says it like it's a bad thing, <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of don't know who his audience is that he thinks that even Telegraph readers surely think that we probably went a little bit too far, and it's probably better that we're not going back there. Well, well there is there is an intox intox. Okay, first of all, old white men love buzzwords because it makes it sound like they know what they're talking about. Um, and not many people understand what AI really is. And there's a lot of this crap that goes on about robots will take all our jobs when it's really about AI working alongside humans. And and so we need to stop with the threat or opportunity bullshit and look at real people who are using AI and machine learning and how this will make banking better. So, yeah, I guess he's right. The the heyday. And it was, you know, the, the roaring 20s before the Depression um, is, is probably over. Do you, think, do you think one of you guys, you know, with your connections could ask him what he means by AI? Because I'm currently writing a report and I'd love his definition because, you know, there are a million and one different definitions of AI out there. Um, I, I, you know, I'd really like Anthony Jenkins' I had a speak and spell when I was seven. That was awesome AI. It was great. It could spell anything. I don't know what a speak and spell is. <laughs> I actually did Watch Toy Story. <laughs> okay. I mean, he's in, in the article, he is quite vague. He says, you know, it could be a big societal consumer and corporate payoff. Yeah, no, but Anthony but, Jenkins yeah. is vague, though. Whenever you hear him speak, I'm sorry, he, I, I don't, he is vague. He does speak in these platitudes and buzzwords and Kodak moments and and it's and it doesn't actually mean anything. We also have to bear in mind he's just set up 10x this consultancy firm which is building banks or setting out to build banks 
you know, this is PR for him. He gets to use yeah. some buzzwords. That's some exactly free how press. I saw the story. His person moves from banking to fintech insider. And some starts sort of producing. Fintech. And oh my God, all of a sudden he's all about fintech but being great. Really, that doesn't really match with the, atti- with the expression he gives, which is, it's a bad thing. So like, is he, he, if, he's, if that's what he's done, he's like, big banks were bad and now we're in fintech and, you know, then the neobanks are much better. That, but that's not how it comes across. It comes across as, man, I wish the, mar- I miss the martinis. Like, I, I got the impression that he was moving to this like fintech camp and was very much like now I'm here uh, you're, you're done I'm, I'm the David to your Goliath but I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm still gonna have my martinis but over here <laughs> not like we drink whilst we're recording this at four in the afternoon or anything like that come in a jam jar with my martini can we get martinis next week I'm looking around. Well, Nobody's agreeing with that. I see why not. <laughs> yeah. It has to be in November yeah. when I start drinking again. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the next story. Um, so this is from the FT, um, submitted by Alex S. again. Um, and Sarah, if you want to talk through this one. So Russia's Putin sounds alarms over risks of cryptocurrencies. So Russia's attitude to cryptocurrencies is brilliant. They can't agree amongst themselves, and then they change their minds, and then they change them again. Um, so this this latest story, which is that is came out this week, was that Putin had warned against the risks of cryptocurrencies and indicated that regulators are ready to crack down. And his comments follow somebody from the Russian central bank saying something similar. They said that they were going to ban cryptocurrency exchanges' websites. Mm-hmm which was an interesting way of going about it. But that was one day after the head, or sorry, a senior executive at the Ministry of Finance said, oh, it's all going to be fine. We're just going to only let accredited um, investors trade in cryptocurrencies. So the, the long story short is that Russia doesn't really know what it's doing. Putin also, I believe, back earlier this year, backed Ethereum and was like, yeah, everybody should do Ethereum. It, it kind of, to me, is the perfect summary of how governments around the world are looking at this thing and going, we've got to do something. What do you want to do, guys? Now, most, most governments have gone, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah, good. Okay, we're going to do this. Russia's like, no, I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. You know, going to shut down some websites. Well, they can't do, the central bank can't shut down websites. Well, maybe in Russia they can. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm misunderstanding yeah. how Russia works. I think he probably has, doesn't quite know what cryptocurrencies are. And to him, you know, this sort of the, the, the hype around cryptocurrencies of being decentralized is, is, you know, anti what Putin's all about, control and Yeah, I, I mean, if you, if you were going to put money on it, I'd put money on them going the same way as Korea or Chi- uh, South Korea or China eventually. But they haven't seemed to have got there yet. Even after all of the high profile meetings with Vitalik and all that support they threw behind it? Well, the thing is that the thing is that they've all got different standpoints. So, like some people met with Vitalik. Putin was all about Ethereum, but then the central bank said one thing. The Ministry of Finance, which is actually a different regulator, said something completely different. So it'd be a little bit like the FCA and the Bank of England coming out with completely different standpoints about what they were going to do with it. Now, generally speaking, those kind of regulators sit down in a room and are like, "We should probably like decide on a one way forward here." We'll see how we go. By by, it doesn't seem to have dented the price of Bitcoin in any way, which it's I think today like was half, over half, five thousand. Yeah, All time high today, wasn't it? Yeah, half the Bitcoin bros I know are Russian. So <laughs> Bitcoin bros, Russian that's Bitcoin bros. <laughs> Poor Simon goes away for one week. <laughs> you turn on him. I wanted to. I wanted not to do Simon. this story. He's not a bro. He's not a bro. I wanted to do this story, and then I was like, "But Simon's on. I bet he won't let me have it." <laughs> Sorry, Earl Simon. Did, did you make him ill? Is that actually how yeah. this happened? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can see me rolling my eyes. <laughs> I roll. 
Cool. Okay, so the next story, um, so we moved from Russia to Venezuela. Um, so this story was submitted by Barb McLean, um, and that Venezuela has too much money, but not enough cash. So nearly a third of the population in Venezuela does not have a bank account, making cash essential for survival. Um, and there's cash shortages at ATMs. Venezuelans can only withdraw 10,000 to 20,000 bolivars a day, which is 700 to 1,400 pounds. But a cheap meal and the capital currently costs about 30,000. So even food is hard to come by without cash. Um, and there's about 720% inflation. Hyperinflation, right? Yeah. I mean, th- 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 we must have seen this coming a long way off. Venezuela has been crashing and burning hyperinflation wise for ages. The first thing that happens is you run out of cash and you print it as fast as you can. Look at Germany after World War One. Yeah, we talked about this on on uh, uh, After Dark. We were actually talking about Somalia, but very similar um, uh, Somalia Somalia land, I believe that may be incorrect. Um, a wallet or a wheelbarrow? Yeah, it was. What, yeah, and the, the problem they had—they literally. I mean, in a way, what we would have to hope here is that it drives some innovation because that's what's happened over there. People have found ways to. Um, the other problem here is that they, these people don't have bank accounts, so cash is literally the only way they can do things. For those people who have a credit card or have a debit card, they can wire money. People are, you know, there's actually kind of a black market going on where people are selling cash to people who have access to the financial system. So it's kind of, um, you know, it shows a serious problem with, you know, lack of financial inclusion as well as hyperinflation. You know, as we were saying in Somaliland, we've seen that drive some really innovative solutions. Um, we have to hope that that's what's going to happen here because I can't imagine carrying a wheelbarrow around is going to be sustainable for long. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just I, I don't know enough about Venezuela to, to give an intelligent opinion, so I'll give a non-intelligent opinion. Um, no, it, it was, um, so uh, Andriana Senea, who, you know, you all, we all know and love, she put up a picture on Facebook yesterday about um, Romania in the 1980s, and she's from Romania, um, and it was an empty, empty supermarket, you know, just with nothing in it. And she said Romania is a huge agriculture uh, industry, and this is, it's not that the food wasn't there, is that the government was deliberately trying to control the market. And I'm just wondering whether there's some some parallels to this, you know, not letting cash, like well, controlling the, the market. The somehow. story is that they pulled 100 Bolivar bills out of circulation and said we've ordered 500 and 1,000 Bolivar bills. Oh, the number, the denominations may be incorrect, but they definitely, they've ordered bigger ones, but the, they can't print the money to keep up with inflation. So the the 500,000 uh, Bolivar bills have arrived, but by this point we're up to, we need a 10,000 uh, Bolivar note. The Prime Minister, President of Venezuela, whoever's in charge there, basically has blamed it all on mafia smuggling the cash over the border to Colombia, which I... Typical of the mafia. <laughs> yeah, I International mean, mafia. I felt bad. The guy they quoted in the story, his last name's Escobar. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't even <laughs> twigged that. <laughs> As soon as I I read this headline, I was like you thinking about the Somaliland and just typed in mobile money, Bitcoin, and came up with some really interesting stuff around this huge crackdown that they're doing on cryptocurrency. So the state subsidizes in Venezuela. Yeah. yeah. So the state subsidizes energy. It's really cheap. So it actually makes a lot of sense to mine cryptocurrency. But they can also track on a household by household level energy usage. So there are all these people being imprisoned indefinitely for stealing energy from the state. So it's driven people to cryptocurrencies rather than mobile money, as we saw in Africa, and the state has cracked down. Wow. Which kind of answers the question I was going to ask. How long before, if you're you're in a hyperinflating economy, then your 
currency becomes totally devalued. I mean, li- literally Germany in, after the Second World War, 1923 or whatever, when it crashed, uh, 10 to the 13 m- marks to the dollar or something ridiculous, like numbers that we can't even comprehend. So then, of course, you just ship all your value out into foreign exchange, foreign currency. Um, if you so, can move your currency out, which, which if you don't have a bank account, obviously you can't. Yeah, but I mean, you, you buy it in whatever means possible. Effectively, the prices of your things become more expensive in your local currency because your local currency becomes valueless. But relative to like the dollar or your external currency, yeah, it's basically kind of flat. In which case you just go, well, fuck the local currency. I'm going to use this other currency. So how long before that becomes something like Bitcoin? Well, you, I mean, you, you still see there are countries around the world. If you've been to Cuba or the Maldives on holiday, they say they'll take dollars rather than the local currency a lot of the time because the dollar are, are more useful to them. They have a lot of tourism in those places, so that makes sense. But it, it's the same idea, right? Like our local currency, I mean, in Cuba, I remember it would be like 1200 whatever the locals were for something that was $2 worth of food or drink. So you, that's exactly, and it, that still happens. I mean, I think they're phasing it out, but um, it will be interesting to see what happens. I, I feel very sorry for everybody in Venezuela who's mm. struggling with this because it looks like a completely impossible situation. And it's a country with a lot of resources. You know, it's 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 a tragedy of a lot of countries similar to Venezuela that have lots of resources that are letting their citizens down. Okay, well, we can all hope for the best and hope for this for some innovation and... Puts Brexit yeah. perspective. I know, I know, I know, I know. Cool, okay. Yeah, well, I thought our exchange rate was bad. Moving from Venezuela, now we're crossing over to China. Um, And this, uh, again, was submitted by Alex S., um, and it's from worldfinance.com. And Benedict, do you want to talk us through this one? So the Chinese government wants to give every citizen a score based on their trustworthiness. And I mean, me and you have talked about kind of the the Jima credit score from Alipay, and we have lots of sort of inside jokes and stuff. But what what is this all about? (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean... This is obviously the references to Black Mirror immediately popped up on Fintech Insider. It's the reaction, the like go-to reaction to anything like this. We talk a lot about Alipay, where it's a credit score that is so deeply ingrained in the society and the country. It's it's sort of difficult to speak about it from London. Like um, it's in the dating apps. You know, rather than looking at someone's photo, you might look at their credit score first. Uh, you can rent a car without putting down a deposit. You can get a quicker visa to Singapore or Luxembourg. So I guess this is sort of in line with the People's Bank of China and the government in general cracking down on corruption. Uh, They're sort of cracking down a little bit on the giants we see, Tencent and Alipay, beginning to try and rail back a little bit. So I guess this is the natural step, release your own credit score rather than using a tech company's. Some pretty brutal punishments, though. Looking at the the article had references to some of the government papers, and they're talking about uh, restrictions on movements around on trains and planes and foreign travel. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's but, harsh. But worse than that, if you get a low score, your car might be detained if it's deemed non-essential for work. This is actually terrifying to me. I don't watch Black Mirror because I, because I think it's too terrifying. I think it's, I think it's too close to reality. Yeah, I, I read this and I was like, huh, what? This feels like something that Orwell wrote. Like, I... I I mean, you say it's a logical next step in my mind. It's like what? <laughs> no, I know. Sorry, I completely follow follow your train of thought and your logic there. But I I cannot get my head around this. Like, well, yeah, I don't. I just can't. I I kind of think that you, you're punishing your citizens for not having bad credit for having bad credit. <laughs> and then the only reason they have bad credit a lot of the time is because you won't lend to them at a reasonable rate. And the companies that will lend them at a reasonable rate are not allowed to lend is to them. Is this a communist so. country? What? <laughs> I was like, wait, wait, where, where have wait, you been? Where have you been for the last time? <laughs> <laughs> That's like lending and interest. And- I mean, I think it's 
like personally, I think that the the traditional way of credit scoring, like the FICO score and everything, is so outdated. So I'm all for alternative. Yeah, I feel like mechanisms. there's been a bad news story recently around that, hasn't there? Yeah. We may have covered it like a few weeks running. I can't put it. Is, I mean, yeah, if you if you like not don't take on any debt, you'll have a bad rating because yeah. you need to. You know, I know a few people who are younger who like don't have credit cards. Yeah, I remember the know? first time somebody told yeah. me that, that like, you have to get a credit card yeah. so you can get a credit score, and I was like, that's mad. Yeah. Like I am, and then it hits them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I could t- totally agree with you. Yeah. I ju- there are alternatives out there. I, I don't think this is one that I would like to promote. Yeah. How long before you can trade it? If I had a trust score, oh, I mean, man. there'd be a dark market there where I could trade yeah. that. This yeah. is a, we're into Blade Runner territory now, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, a bit like, dangerous. We have to send generators to these communist countries so that they can mine bitcoins and, and trustworthy coins and everything will be coin-based. Everything will be a tokenized yes, version of value. Yes, everything will be tokenized. I love it. The future will be tokenized. Are you being Simon today? <laughs> He's like channeling Simon. I'm becoming more and more obsessed. We should maybe that. just have a button that says, is there a token for that? Yes. <laughs> Oh, awesome. That's good. That's the phrase of 2017. <laughs> cool. Okay, um, so the next story, Liz, is from Reuters, and the EU investigates possible Dutch and Polish blocking of fintech services. What's what's going Ooh, on over here? Everyone knows PSD2 is coming, the CMA directive is coming, open banking is coming, and of course the banks aren't threatened by this at all unless you're a bank in Poland uh, or are uh, Holland. Um, but or what others. I, or others. This was only two of them. <laughs> yeah, so this is, the, the thing that I was most intrigued about this story was, you know, you usually think banks are going to complain to the regulators about uh, fintech, you know, entrants, uh, you know, taking their data or screen scraping. Um, but what I love about this is that the, the two bodies were targets of Dawn raids by the European Commission last week. Dawn so, raids. Dawn raids. Yeah, so police came whoa. in. Representatives of German, British, and French banking bodies were not raided. So, um, <laughs> so, so did, did, what, made, what they immediately reminded me of was mm. the exact same thing happened in Germany about 18 months ago. The German regulator went to the German banks and were like, you ha- basically German banks had something in their terms and conditions, which uh, was quite specific to Germany, but it was basically like you can't hand over what they would call your PIN and your TAN. So it'd be like your online uh, login details that would be the equivalent in the UK. And they said, you can't hand that over to anybody else. You're breaking your terms and conditions. And um, you know, the, the Germanic culture being the way it is, people were quite, quite, uh, they used to abide by that. I mean, a lot of people in the UK go, ah, here's my online banking details. Don't worry about it. Um, and the, the German regulator went, well, that's just stifling competition. He was like, the, he, they, it was like, the reason that we don't have any, you know, booming e-commerce in Germany or we don't have any payments alternatives is, is largely because of you guys. So the German regulator went in and said to the bank, you've got to stop. That's illegal. You've got to let people share their data. There's an appeal ongoing, and I don't know the outcome of that, but this just reminded me exactly of that. And then when you said the German um, offices hadn't been raided, I was like, yes, because they... They've already been there, done that. <laughs> They've already had their, their raids at dawn. Surely yeah. one of the smuggest lines ever, representative of the, of the German, British and French banking bodies, said they were not raided. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, finally the British banks. I'm just thinking of like, you know, the FBI going for a dawn raid. I'm like, I want to know what like bureaucrats from the European Commission doing a dawn raid looks like. I want that on tape. I'm assuming it comes with croissants and coffee. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it can't so be I that. knock on the door. Are you, yeah. are you dressed? Can we pop in? Is that all right? It's Can not going to be... Oh, we'll come back in two hours. It's not going to be backups, is it? No. It's great. Yeah, no, this this is, I think the the banks are fighting back against the fintechs. Uh, It's quite interesting because I know that ABN AMRO is... Yeah, so much. You think Holland with investing, like Robobank as well. Yeah, yeah, even ING and everything. So it just seems odd. 
So, or maybe they're saying something in public and doing something different. Mm. Uh, do we? Can you? Can we get notes from this? Is it like like do they have <laughs> to publish the, their Ooh. findings if they've said they've done dawn rays? Tune this in like next a, week to can, the continuing. Can anybody saga. do a, a, a freedom of information request to like the, the EU? Somebody must be able to do yes, that. Yes, we will. We're, we're doing that. Yes, watch watch this space. Watch somebody somebody work that out for us. <laughs> Just before we hear from our sponsors, I caught up with Adam Dodds from Freetrade.io, who shared some exciting news with us about their recent authorization of their business. Let's hear from him now. This is MJ from 11FS, and I am here with Adam Dodds, the co-founder and CEO of Free Trade, which brings zero commission investing to Europe. Adam, welcome to Fintech Insider. Thanks. Hey, MJ. Can you give us a bit of background um, about what Free Trade is? Yeah, so Free Trade, we're the UK's challenger stockbroker. So we're building an investment platform where our members can invest in the stock market without getting ripped off. Brilliant. Our first product is an iOS app. So you can uh, buy, sell US stocks, uh, UK stocks, ETFs, without having to pay uh, kind of like punitive commissions and fees. Great. So you're like the transfer wise of trading. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, you could say that. Or uh, if you're familiar with Robinhood, we're like the Robinhood of the UK. Yep. Great. And so so where are you at the moment? Is the, is the platform live or... Yeah, so in our kind of our startup journey, uh, we've been working on this about a year and a half. Okay, um, and we've we've raised some money on uh, through crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. We have uh, twelve hundred investors backing us, and off the back of that, we've applied and now just received approval from the FCA to be a stockbroker. So we're actually now we've built a financial institution from from nothing in the last wow. uh, last year or so with uh, the support of our investors. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so how do you, where'd the idea come from? Uh, well, it really was a like, personal pain point of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can probably tell by my accent, I'm not from uh, London. And I moved here about three years ago with KPMG. So a uh, new country, you know, new investment account. Mm-hmm. And I was just really surprised at the gap in the market over here, uh, where you really have uh, the incumbent stockbrokers haven't changed in since like what late late nineties or something like that first round of disruption, mm-hmm. um, and everything's kind of web based, really tired, and the commission structure is just insane. Um, so someone like myself who doesn't have a thousand, two thousand pounds at the end of the month to put into the stock market, those uh, those twelve pound commissions really really biting you know so it was really that pain point seeing the gap in the market and thinking uh yeah well i think i think i could do that yeah it's kind of two things what we're seeing from you know successful fintechs solving um pain points around um sort of the i guess the monetary um cost of of banking but also using digital capabilities to make it easier so from a digital perspective what what sort of stands out? Well, it's interesting you said uh, we're like the transfer wise of stock trading because no one's actually said that to me before, but it's, it's a really good analogy because, you know, banks previously to transfer money, it really, all it is is a kind of like a, an entry on the ledger mm-hmm. uh, for these guys and they're charging, what, 50 pounds mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever they can, right? And it's not that different in the stockbroking industry either, right? So you're, you have a share of Facebook or you have a share of whatever, all that is is you know ones and zeros in a, a database somewhere, and to, for me to 
you know, trade with you, you give me some money and I give you the share, whatever. All it is is, again, just a change in uh, kind of ownership in the digital ledger. So uh, there, there is no good reason why uh, the commission levels and the pricing is so high. Um, and yeah, technology is a great enabler uh, for us as well. Definitely. So, I mean, broking has survived for a long time uninhibited by disruption. Why Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's sort of like the last of the segments to sort of be subjected to this wave of disruption? Well, it's it's hard to do. Um, I was talking to you about the FCA authorization process. You actually need to be a regulated financial institution, kind of like a bank, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's not as easy as uh, some other verticals. I would also say that there's, especially in the UK, there is not a very receptive incumbent uh, industry to this. Mm -hmm. So they've grown fat off these margins for a long time. Uh, there's no incentive for them to play nice with people wanting to come in and destroy their business, right? So I think that's all a part of it. So the the big um, bottleneck, so to speak, was being authorized by the FCA. Mm -hmm. So now that we are an authorized stockbroker, we can join these organizations as equals with uh, the incumbents and that's crucial for us in our model so because we don't then have all these middlemen intermediaries uh, all wanting a cut yep so you can sort of pass the pass the little yeah. class down to the end user. And, and to answer your question uh, it hasn't been easy it's it's not a, an easy process mm -hmm. and you need to have um, I don't know minimum capital requirements these kind of things that come with time and of course so free trade um, free trade hasn't been tempted into CFDs um, why not and what do you see as the future of CFDs in the UK okay so CFDs uh, for some listeners who probably don't know they're called the contracts for differences these are financial derivatives. They're you know over-the-counter uh, contracts with another counterparty. So you're not actually owning a stock. It's kind of like spread betting is another product very similar, and you're betting on the movement of a stock. So I think there's a lot of confusion in the market right now um, on purpose by the CFD providers about what is actually stock trading. And I, I don't think that uh, CFD trading is stock trading. That's just my view. Uh, but the FCA, of course, uh, they came out with a report on this about under a year ago, back in December. And they found that the average customer of a CFD broker loses around 2,000 pounds a year. Really? Yeah. So if your average customer is losing 2,000 pounds, yeah. that's not an investment product, yeah. let alone um, actual shares. So we, we definitely uh, don't have a very um, positive view of the CFD, the CFD brokers, or at least how they're marketing to retail investors. Mm -hmm. I want to draw a clear line between what we're doing and what they're doing. What we're doing is actually offering the ability to buy and own real shares in real companies. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited to download the app and start trading. Yeah, it's, it, well, that's the whole idea is you can just go into the app store, download this thing, you know, give your details, do onboarding, KYC, standard stuff, and then... Uh, you fund your account with a faster payment, just like you would top up your Monzo card, yeah. and then uh, you're good to go. And you can invest any amount you want okay. in any stocks in our universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's through the magic of uh, fractional shares. So you don't have to save up a thousand pounds to buy some Amazon. Okay. Um, you can just invest a hundred at the end of your uh, end of the month with your paycheck. You know. So, I mean, do you think free trade will change the way we approach savings and investments in the UK and how so? I think it depends on um, 
potentially how old you are, to be honest. I think the incumbents, so, you know, the Hargraves, Lansdowns of the world, they're really targeting their product towards their, you know, their core customers, which are, you know, 50-year-old men generally uh, with 100K plus portfolio size. Us, on the other hand, we have 14, what, 15,000 people on our wait list. Mm-hmm. You know, people really, really excited to get free trade. And we've talked to them and we know a little bit about them, right? And almost half of them are between the ages of 25 and 35. Yeah. This is a demographic that the incumbents don't even care about. Mm-hmm. They, they just think that, oh, millennials, millennials don't have money. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why would we invest in, uh, in trying to build a product for them? So I think there's, yeah, a huge opportunity to get the next generation into investing in the stock market and participating in what is probably the, the number one source of value creation in the world, these, these big public companies. Yeah, definitely. So w- with the app itself, did you um, build the technology in-house? Yeah, we're, we're like uh, most fintech firms here in the city. We, uh, we have a tech stack that mm-hmm. relies upon certain aspects that we've developed ourselves proprietarily mm-hmm. and uh, also other partners. So uh, for example, you know, you do your, uh, your onboarding with us. We rely upon a partner to do the EKYC check. We use OnFido. Uh, a lot of fintech firms in the city use OnFido as well. Uh, so we don't build everything ourselves, uh, but I think it's how you put it together. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the front-end product as well is, uh, is proprietary. Cool. So what's the goal for free trade in, say, two years down the line? Uh, well, I, th- I hope that in two years, free trade will be the go-to app for everyone under 40 in Europe to invest. Cool. So you're looking to go outside of the UK as well? Yeah, absolutely. We, Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, who knows what's going to happen with this Brexit thing uh, and transition and all this stuff. Uh, but it's a pretty pretty easy process for us right now to apply for a passport to sell our services throughout the EU. Uh, fingers crossed that stays that, way, yeah. stays that way. Otherwise, you know, there's some friendly uh, regulatory jurisdictions in Europe as well. Yep. Cool. Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Adam, for your time. Um, hopefully, you can bump me up on the waiting list because I'm keen to check free trade out. Yeah, for sure. You just go to our website, freetrade.io. You sign up there, and you'll uh, you'll be on the one of the first ones cool. to get access. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the innovation acceleration platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.terminos.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors. And just quickly before we get back into the news, we just wanted to say we never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the last week on the show. 
But don't forget you can now head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we have discussed. You can also sign up and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast and many other fantastic names from the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. That's fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at, at fintechinsiders on Twitter or find us on Facebook. Okay, so we are back and the next story was submitted again by Barb and it's talking about how London fintech star Monzo is fending off one takeover offer each month. <laughs> what I'm glad they think told us about, about this. Are we surprised? Or? <laughs> only, only one. Oh. Yeah, I can, yeah. I mean, you can, you can believe it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What do they benefit from sharing this kind of thing? It's PR. They're talking Is about how cool they are. Is it just to keep, keep them are. in the headlines? Yeah. I mean, they probably are. I don't think, I don't think they're lying. No, I don't, I don't yeah. disagree at all. I think, yeah. there's probably, I think they're probably I mean, there's true. a lot that I think, I mean, it's my opinion that Monzo or come and Spanks like Monzo will eventually be acquired. It's, um, and I think a lot of, you know, they have to look at what happened with Simple and BBVA and look at the lessons learned from that. Um, and it's also a bit of, their moms are very good at PR. You know, we tell, we're transparent. We say everything. We say when we fuck up, we say when we don't fuck up. And now they're basically, it's like, oh my God, I have so many boyfriends and they just keep calling me. Oh my God. That's what this is. Can I, can I read my favorite line? Is it, it really ruins your day? Um, it will be, you'll, uh, we'll, we'll help you. We'll help you realize your potential much, much faster. Oh, and it's like, well, yes, or you'll stick us in a basement and we'll rot away and die because frankly, you don't really want to disrupt your own business models that much. So certainly not as much as we do. So let's see you in 10 years time. <laughs> okay, well, fine then. Outside, presumably. You, me, outside. No, not now, but in 10 years. <laughs> there is some truth to it. There is, I, I mean, especially the way M&As used to be years ago. And I, I don't think things have massively changed. There is an element of buying stuff to kill it. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, I get that. But I think a smart bank that would buy Monzo, I'm hoping. I, I, I live in hope. I'm like... A, I'm like I have fairy wings and a wand. <laughs> I don't know. I though, BB, like BBVA, probably one of the smarter European banks. Really good products and offerings. They've done a big revamp recently. Still killed simple. But, dead. but they didn't necessarily. I mean, yes, they did a bad job of it. But when you look at the problem they had, it was actually the major problem they had was it was replatforming because you cannot, as a neo bank, have your own. Well, you can have your own license in the states, but nobody's bothered with it. So Simple was using Bancorp to issue its cards and provide its license and provide its platform. And then when BBVA Compass bought it, they're like, we don't want our competitor running our. A neobank giving us the underlying technology so we're going to move you all from Bancorp to BBVA Compass whatever the US platform was and that turned out to be really really difficult yeah they didn't like customers just didn't get migrated and they got emails being like well sorry we kind of screwed up yeah. this one nice having you as a customer you have to get a new you have to start again and get a new account people, um, people always miss uh, uh, underestimate system integration yeah and they an enterprise architecture and embedding into it and how hard that is. so you know what bbva has done since <laughs> oh do you work for a company sorry. that does that sorry i just would you love like, enterprise architecture what can would i say you, would you like to give us a, a, a short guide uh, uh, the shortest guide i found was 700 pages from Togaf. Can we do it's a separate podcast? Sure. All right. Uh, so the, 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 what BBVA have done since is to buy an SMB-focused bank, a Finnish one called Holvi, and just let them run. So they are just running on their own systems, doing their own thing. I have no doubt that there's some BBVA money in there. And I have no doubt that Holvi is going and working BBVA and helping them out. You look at what they've done with Atom. They are holding their share of Atom below 0.5% below the percentage whereby they would be required by British law to make an acquisition offer. So I would say BBVA has learned <laughs> from from its simple acquisition. 
you know, to go back to Monzo, I completely agree that I think eventually that's probably the way it's going to go. But I think that those guys are too smart. I mean, how many different businesses has Tom been involved in in that area? He's got so much experience that he's going to make the right decision when it's right for him. I don't reckon they'll get taken over. I kind of reckon. And I, I, really <laughs> I don't like think it's going to be next year. I think no, it I reckon, will be eventually. I reckon maybe, yeah. and this sounds a bit bad, and I, I love you, Monzo, don't hate me. But I, I reckon maybe I'm too arrogant to to think, hey, of course we can take you guys on and smash you down. And I reckon they might be right. I, I mean, I don't know. I know I know that some of the guys quite well, and they're, they're really smart guys, and I reckon they could actually make a dent, and I reckon they believe it, and that's the difference. So I, I say they might hold yeah. out. I mean, they're definitely making a dent around here. I actually was standing, there's around the, I work in the building next door to the building we record this in, and I was in the avocado sushi place. Um, other sushi places are available. And watched watched people in front of me pay and there were seven people in front of me in the queue and every single one had a Monzo card I didn't see any other cards on display I don't actually know anybody who hasn't got one in this you know in this kind of like yeah East London welcome to East London and also I work in Ventec and I work next to a building that has um, Uber in it and you guys in it (laughs) let me just get my hipster glasses as I don't have a Monzo card I only have a Mondo card (laughs) oh he's so yeah right I've got one as well but it's been replaced with an actual current account Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I have a current account. I have a current account now, except that like doesn't work online merchants yet. I'm still up. Other banks are available, by the way. I just realised we're we're totally advertising well, we, these we guys. We're going to talk about another. Yes. Speaking of, yeah, speaking of other segue. banks, let's talk about the other challenger bank in the UK, Starling. Um, so they launched a new goals feature. Benedict, do you want to tell us a bit more about this feature? Yeah, sure. And we can continue the criticism of Monzo actually a little bit <laughs> because. I haven't please been... Please don't turn off my account. <laughs> yeah, please don't turn off my account. I don't have a live styling account that I use properly, but having been using Monzo since they launched, pretty much, I'm now coming around to the fact that styling is ahead on pretty much every measurable. It's They've got ahead. more products, live cards. They can print enough cards, which Monzo still hasn't quite gotten their head around. API marketplaces, switching services... A fast Could payment integration, fast so payment, no exactly. problem with kind of like the problem I've had trying to use my Monzo uh, current account card and and other people will experience this. And Monzo are very open about this is that not every merchant yet recognises it as a as a debit payment card. As you say, Starling doesn't appear to have any of those problems. Yeah. Um, I kind of this Starling launches goals. Like I kind of get the idea of it but I think I'm quite confused by how I would use it okay well having spent the whole of yesterday doing a write up in Pulse I can actually talk a little bit about it <laughs> please do please not that we're name dropping <laughs> Pulse there at all well, I have um, some questions for you actually so <laughs> So it's uh, it's quite clever. Like, you know, savings pots, you know, you put your cash in one jam jar if you're going to spend it on food, you're going to put one jam jar if you spend it on holiday. But the problem doing that with electronic banking is you essentially have to open a separate account to really have that reflected in the balance. What Starling has done is you set up a goal. It's really easy to set up. You can add a photo. It's quite nice. It's talking to the product designers. They're talking about the psychology behind it. It will make sense. And anything you put in that pot is removed from your spending balance. And you can slowly work towards it. Like it makes it. It doesn't sound as impressive as it is, but we've seen millions, or not millions. We've seen a lot of PFM tools. Yeah. On the whole, really underwhelming. This actually really nice, really clean interface. You know, they're not messing around, and it just does the job. And they've had a load of people on trial, and they're raising huge amounts of cash. 
can I get so the, I have I completely agree I have a million and one different accounts which are set up all over the place because I've got that that's my holiday pot and I have an ISA over here and that's an ISA for something different because it's a different tax wrapper and that's you know and they're all with different banks so I completely understand I, I, I am drawn to the idea but I have a much better interest rate on some of those pots than I do on my current account and I get my interest paid monthly in those even though they're savings accounts so they're instant savings account that give me interest paid monthly and I can withdraw at any point. So I could use it, but I can't use that as a current account because it's a saver, online saver only. So that's the attraction for me is that I pull the money out. So I'm going to go on holiday in December. So I take the money out of my paycheck. I put it straight into the, it's with a different bank, into that account. And I get £10 a month interest thrown onto that by having it in a savings account somewhere else. Do I get that at Starling? Do I get it, do I get that kind of extra interest? Well, you get the regular interest because it all, although it's in a separate pot, the whole thing sits within the same account. So you get the same account what uh, is interest. interest rate? Oh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Okay. But but it's more, I think basically we're talking about different timescales here. This is like savings goals over a couple of months. We're not looking at like your pension pot or anything. No, but this is, I mean, that's how I use my, I, that's how I pay for my holiday is stick it in a high interest rate. But over what, but over what six months? months or something uh, three or four months yeah probably okay well you're moving your money around more than most people <laughs> yeah, potentially in all fairness i am a really sorry i should pull this back i should stop being so uh, provocative because people around this table are much more financially literate than the average the average consumer i well, totally I get that. i don't know just to, to keep on apologize star- <laughs> to keep on starling but kind of away from this story they also announced they're moving into business banking yeah which i think is much more interesting because when i was md of startup bootcamp fintech the biggest problem we had was getting business bank accounts for the startups right. and lloyd's banking group were our partner so and we- it was hell it was absolute hell and i met with a woman last week who runs a small organization in canada and she came over here to start a uk chapter and she all the banks uk high street banks were saying you know you're too small for us to give you a ba- business bank account um, so, so some, a bank like Starling getting into that market, I think, is a really good thing. Yeah. We, we covered it quite mm-hmm. extensively last week with um, with Jamie from, from Bud and, and David. And I think that the consensus on it was it's a brilliant idea, but you have to execute. Like, you can't just give a current account with a business wrapper on it. It has to be a business. Yeah, account. I mean, we've seen, like, looking towards Europe, we've seen N26 offer business accounts, Bunk offer business accounts, and it's kind of... It, yeah, you, but you know what? We, we can have all that discussion. But when you're a startup in London and all your developers walk off the job because you don't have a business bank account to pay them in another in another part of Europe, you know that's a big deal. I mean, we have to. We what you have to work out is whether you can do that with the Starling business account. It's it remains to be seen. Do you want to move sorry, on to? Sorry, from, I went off from on a tangent. <laughs> from neobanks to, to somebody who might become a neobank. Yes, nice segue. Um, so this is a story from Business Insider, um, submitted by Seymour. Um, and it's the Zopa CEO talking about their progress on building a new bank. Sarah, do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, so this is this is um, an article that came out of um, an interview my colleague Oscar did with the, the CEO at Lendit this week. And, um, and basically what he said was, you know, it was encouraging news. He said, we, we've pretty much much um, finished building the, the technology we need to have a bank. Um, that's not overly surprising. I wouldn't have thought, you know, Zopa's had a tech platform that they have kept up to date for, for quite a while. Um, the thing that he did mention or that's alluded to in this piece is that they are about halfway towards getting their license. Now, in my experience, observing Neobank set up, it's actually the license that's the problem, not the technology. Generally speaking, I've seen poor tandem, you know, go through their struggles. It took Monzo a while to get there as well. 
took Starlink a while for all, in all fairness, two, two years or so to get that license. So I'm really pleased that the tech's nearly there. I think that the next, you know, before we get too excited about another bank on the scene, they, they do need to get through that licensing process. Yeah. Um, I have, I have no, we, we, we it's have like no a story idea. we'll talk about two years from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, mark this date. <laughs> I'll come back to that one. Yeah, so I think long story short, we'd, we'll just wait and see what they get to and, and what products they're going to launch will be the interesting thing with them. I did ask in the Monzo Slack channel today whether it, it was really true that they're talking, because they said they were in very uh, sporadic conversations or something with Tand- yeah, yeah. Tandem at Monzo and Starling. And they seemed to say, oh, I don't see why not. But they didn't say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't the case of, wow, man, it's really hard to get up here, by the way. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, closing the trap door. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay, so let's move out of the UK. And um, this is a story from Disrupt Africa. And Zambia's Zazu begins crowdfunding to launch a digital bank. Um, so this was an initiative born from the Ignite Accelerator. Um, and Zanzu is looking to be the 21st century bank for Africa. Um, so Zambia has 16.6 million people with 1.2 million adults in formal employment, um, 1.4 million MSMEs and 2 million emerging farmers. Um, so really just looking to capitalize on the underbanked. Um, Benedict, you're a African expert. <laughs> you wanna- uh, yeah. In a previous life, I, was, uh, in the, I worked for an NGO that's in financial inclusion. So the tool we always used to go to is something called Finscope, which is a great survey tool whenever you're looking at any country. 40% of the population in 2015 didn't have a bank account. That sounds really bad, but it was 60% four years prior to that, so God knows where it is now. I think this is a fantastic thing. All of these challenger banks in the UK, every time I look at them, you just say, why are you not already spinning off some yeah. kind of product into Africa? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just la- launch in Kenya, get it started. It will be bigger than Monzo is now in a year. To go, to go back to that initial question about licensing requirements, what is that a hurdle? I mean, if you're, if you're, I have known very little about African financial regulation. I will freely admit that. Um, is it is that something that's kind of easy enough to do? Or is that something that... It's complicated. It tends to be a question of talking to the regulators and, and getting some kind of sign-off at an early stage and continue the conversation. It's really not black and white. I mean, presumably if you're going and in there and saying we're going to promote financial inclusion, which is something that most governments want, you've probably got a, a foot in the door. Exactly. And most governments pick up a huge amount of funding from all the big international bodies for pushing. I don't know enough about Zambia, but say you're launching this Rwanda the government is going to be very interested in having talks. And if you're, you know, your motives are good, you're not just going to be hunting for profits, you are actually working towards something, yeah, I think you can go for it. I think the interesting thing here is they're kind of, they've modeled the proposition off what we're seeing with like Monzo and Starling. So it's a prepaid card with a companion app. So real-time log of a consumer spending and control on the card usage. It's, it's so that, close. <laughs> does it make sense, though? Is that is that definitely the best? Because the, the kind of demographics they're talking about, and I do not know enough about this at all. I, I have a, a hilarious story about uh, getting a Nigerian banking license, by the way. <laughs> with, with something called the Nigerian Paper Drop Solution, which is you, you, brilliant. You know when you're in a niche group, when that makes the entire group laugh. I, but I'll have to tell you afterwards. It is hilarious. The Paper Drop Solution is brilliant. Um, but anyway, like, but I don't know enough about the demographics, but the kind of things they're talking about, does it sound like, POS is is like point of sale type transactions are the issue or is it the transfer of value between people who maybe don't have POS So what, what's the others I mean if you look at the other solutions you see in Africa that have taken off they're mobile to mobile aren't they they're mobile to account to mobile account so 
I would assume you're showing me something and I can't see it. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's on the. It's not just a smartphone app. It's available a on the exactly. Oh, so yeah. think of Monzo. You can yeah. access with an SMS. So that's that's the key to it, isn't it? In Africa, that's going to be that you can transfer because every every merchant has a feature phone, so you can actually pay. For In which your... case, I think that's really good. So long as there is a, a way for me to be able to transfer from a phone to a phone rather than having to go through a card. The card almost seems. Whereas in the UK, it's the dominant feature of your bank account. It feels like it might be a tertiary feature. Um, So we'll move on to our final story, Um, and it's confirmation of something that some of us probably already guessed, and it was submitted by Tanya A., um, and it's official, Siri is a simpleton. Um, (laughs) This goes back to earlier what we were talking about, what is AI? Yeah, I I didn't want to spoil it, but this is quite quite a fun story. Um, So essentially, some researchers over in China um, conducted some research looking at how smart are AI virtual assistants Um, and it turns out that those who are worried about the technology rising up and enslaving us or taking away the heydays of banking can sleep easy at the moment because the average six-year-old has a higher IQ. I know some people with six-year-olds who are ruled by those six-year-olds is all I'm gonna say. Um, No, IQ is probably not the best measure but you're absolutely right like it shows how far we've got to go. But every time we get a press release coming through that X bank has released a Siri integration, a Google Home integration. Everyone in the office just groans. And this is the worst technology implemented in the worst way. Oh, good Apple bashing. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, in terms of the best and worst, Google featured at the top of the AI list. Mm-hmm. It's with an, that it, it's because it listens to you when you're not yeah. expecting it to. That's why. With an IQ of 47.28, um, Baidu Doer got 37.2. Chinese search engine Sogu hit the heights of 32.25. Bing had an IQ of 31. And yeah, Apple Siri was a lowly 23.94. What's the average? What's the average? person's IQ? Like... Bang on 100 by oh. definition, yeah, because it's your it's your mental age divided by your actual age times by 100 it's a percentage. Um, so yeah, so 40 for example is a high one, it's not very high. Okay. But then I don't know if you can really compare them because like the way you do an IQ test is we give you all of these spatial reasoning and, yeah. and pattern tests. That you, and you, voice you assistants a... famously struggle with spatial reasoning when you present it with them. <laughs> so they, yeah. so you, they had to completely decompose what they considered to be a, a, an ability or IQ test and redefine a totally new paradigm uh, I don't know if you read the paper. My God, it was full of a lot of maths and diagrams. Doesn't but, sound like my, my idea of a funny... Oh, it was a real struggle. But, but the point is that what they've done is not really an IQ test. So when they're like, it's 47, it's like, it's 47 on your scale. I don't know if I can really compare that to an IQ Is it kind of like when they do stuff with pets? Like like the pets has a mental age of a... Like yeah, how, how intelligent is a dolphin, yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It felt like that, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, talking about animal IQs... um Those are a very high IQ panel <laughs> here. We will wrap up another news show. <laughs> and um quite looking forward to listening to this Nigerian banking license story after this show. We're, we're off to the pub here about Nigerian banking license. The paper job solution. Yeah. <laughs> And as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook or our Fintech Insider page. If you've liked what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review um, of us on iTunes.